You're listening to the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Lucia Pereira Pardo and Louise O'Connor from the National Archives UK and National Library of Ireland, respectively. Their paper was entitled Understanding Colour in Tudor and Stuart Ireland, Analysis of the Colourants Used in 16th and 17th Century Irish Maps and Heraldic Manuscripts. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for the organisers. We are very happy to be, to be here today. Um, so this is going to be slightly different to the previous presentations you've seen. It's very visual, so um, pay attention to the screen. And we are going to be talking about colour and how uh, map makers and illuminators were using colorants um, in, the er- in early modern um, Ireland. Um, so this relates to a relatively new discipline. That is what I do. It's called heritage science um, and technical art history. Um, and these are um, disciplines that use scientific methods and new technologies to interrogate cultural heritage from the point of view of its materiality. By doing this, we try to address research questions related to artist techniques, uh, authorship, um, influences, influences between artists and cultural exchange, dating of artworks, um, authentication, and issues also around conservation. So the current condition of documents, conservation problems, and assessment of future preservation. Um, so my interest in Tudor and Stuart map making in Ireland was prompted by actually a reader's request. Uh, a researcher who was coming to TNA from Queen's University Belfast, who was also a filmmaker uh, working on uh, Richard Bartlett. Uh, she was preparing a documentary about him as an artist. So she was very interested in understanding his methodology, the way he was working, the materials he would use. And she found out that at the National Archives, we have a laboratory and we do this kind of uh, technical studies of the documents. So she asked me if I could do analysis of the pigments in Richard Bartlett's uh, maps for her to illustrate more realistically her documentary. Of course, I was super excited. I said yes immediately. And I found out about Richard Bartlett and I saw his magnificent maps. Um, So then the project grew into the contextualization of Bartlett's maps in in the period, so compared to other map makers of the time working in Ireland. Um, so we applied for an Arts and Humanities Research Council grant uh, together with the Uni- Nottingham Trent University. Uh, we were successful, so this allowed us to apply um, AI technologies to the processing of the data, so making it more efficient for me to look at a bigger collection of maps. Um, so we studied about 27 maps in total, thanks to this um, easiest, easiest processing of the data. Um, my conclusion was that Bartlett was extraordinary in comparison with um, similar map makers of the period. So I wanted to learn more about his, uh, his technique and his methodology of work. And that's when I came to Dublin. I contacted Louise, and she kindly hosted me in, in their um, conservation studio at the National Library of Ireland, and I could study other maps by Bartlett. Um, uh, so this project, uh, so what I, you're hearing today is the... 
um, the fruit of that collaboration, of that project. Um, during my stay, uh, Luis also pointed me to another collection that was extraordinary and rare survival of uh, painted works on paper, paper from this period, which are the heraldic manuscripts that she, she will present in a moment. Um, so specifically, the research questions we were trying to answer with the analysis of these early modern works on paper were um, what are the materials and techniques that artists were using in Tudor and early Stuart, uh, in and Stuart Ireland, um, and we wanted to understand also the, um, the production context of these manuscripts. Uh, so what was the origin of the materials? Were they local or imported? Uh, were they obtained here in Ireland or brought from England? Uh, were they common materials or quite expensive? Um, are the techniques they were using similar to other media uh, of the period, like easel painting, or polychrome sculpture, or printing? Um, and then were the map makers working in isolation or were they influencing each other? and how standardized was their profession at the time. So these kind of questions was, was our goal. Um, and for this, we applied um, a technical art history approach. So combining material analysis with non-invasive techniques, so no need of taking samples, and also consultation of documentary sources, like historic uh, painting manuals, uh, documentation on pigment trade uh, from that period. And this was inspired by several projects that we like, we admire, like the Miniare project in the University of Cambridge, where they analyze uh, large and relevant groups of illuminated manuscripts from the university collection uh, to understand the trends in, in, in manuscript illumination in Europe, um, and also the approach that they had at the National Archives in France uh, when they organized this exhibition uh, that considers map, make, map makers as artists. So uh, the, the title of the exhibition was When Artists Designed uh, Maps. Um, so uh, having this approach of technical art history for map making. Um, we are not the first to do this kind of um, analysis of Irish uh, cultural heritage. There are some precedents. At the moment, there is a very interesting project at uh, University College Cork called Inks and Skins. I recommend having a look at their website. It's very good. Um, so this is an interdisciplinary project that focuses on late medieval Gaelic manuscripts. Um, it has been funded by the Irish Research Council and is led by uh, researchers both in, in Cork and um, the University College and also the Tyndall National Institute. And then previously, uh, here in Dublin at Trinity College, um, there were several uh, instances of analysis with uh, scientific instruments of early medieval um, manuscripts, as you probably saw in the media, the Book of Kells and other early, early Irish manuscripts. Um, and then some other experiences looking at different types of materials like wall paintings, um, another illuminated manuscript, and some textiles that were investigated from a scientific material point of view. Um, so now I think Louise would like to make some um, definitions of the vocabulary we are going to use and introduce some more concepts. So um, just to say what a colorant is, and it's just a, den a general term for a dye or a pigment that colors something. So you can have a pigment or a dye, and a pigment is generally inorganic, and it may be natural, mineral-based, or it may be synthetic, um, man-made. So um, a dye, then, is always organic, and it could be natural, extracted from plants or animals, or it could be synthetic, man-made. This, um, a dye, can be made into a lake pigment by precipitating, bear with me, precipitating on a colourless mineral base, like alum or gesim, and we'll, we have examples of that um, to show you. 
Um, a pigment is generally mixed with a binding medium, such as gum or egg or oil, um, and then you can write with it, you can paint with it, and um, on drying it creates a film and it adheres the particles onto the page. And in the 16th century, there was approximately 15 pigments commonly used on parchment and paper. And um, as Luthia mentioned, there was uh, essentially how to paint manuals and treaties that were in circulation across Europe. Um, so there was a lot going on at the time. And um, visual identification, just looking at the colours in the microscope or even just um, photography, can tell you a lot about the material. But really, material identification is only possible through instrumental analysis of the chemical elements and their compounds. So pigments were probably sold by apothecaries in Dublin City, as in other cities across Europe. And indeed, pigments were also used for medicinal purposes. There is an ev there's evidence from a 2008 archaeological dig in Dublin, um, which found um, a pottery shop uh, from the 17th century with um, orpiment in, in vessels and also four oyster shells, which were used for, for mixing. And this is really great because it's the first instance of this kind of archaeological evidence in Dublin. And um, one of your colleagues, John Cunningham, has suggested that the shop may have belonged to Jacob Reichman, a Dutchman, and he may have been located on Bright Street or Golden Lane. And that's significant because just behind Dublin Castle, it went on to hold many surgeons and apothecaries, and in the 18th century, a lot of colourmen. Um, pigments and dyes were traded across Europe, yeah, yet archival documents which detail their trade in Ireland are very rare. The Bristol trade records for 1594-95 give us evidence of artist materials and dyes such as oracle, woad, or woad, carmes, indigo, were regularly imported into Ireland. And they also imported apothecary wares, which may have included pigments. And there is also evidence in the London port books in Kew, which have yet to be re properly researched, but um, of evidence of pigments coming from London into Dublin. So it's by investigating the material science, really, of our cultural heritage that we can piece together the picture of what materials were used and link it with these trade um, records and known practice in other countries. Okay, so now I'm going to introduce the methodology, the kind of um, instruments that uh, we use to analyze the materials. Um, so the first thing I normally do is to image the documents I'm studying under um, what we call a multispectral imaging system. So this simply means that instead of using a normal camera that uses visible light to image the object, we use ultraviolet and infrared radiation as well. And we see how the different materials uh, behave, how they change color, the luminescence that they might, em might emit under UV light, and that might be characteristic of certain pigments. So we compare the behavior of the materials in our document with a reference set of pigments of known composition, and we make comparisons and narrow down the possibilities. So after we've done this, uh, we apply point analysis, non-invasive. Um, so microscopy, as Louis said, is always very helpful. We have, as you can see there on the left, um, USB very small microscopes that you can plug into your computer and give you already very good magnification up to 200 times. And you can actually see pigment particles like in the image there. Um, and then we actually analyze the chemical elements present in the materials. So we have uh, X-ray fluorescence, and this is like a pistol that you point and shoot. It uses X-rays, and it captures the, um, the signal emitted by the different uh, elements. And the result is this kind of plot where you have energy versus intensity. So basically, each peak represents a chemical element. So here, for instance, we have copper in a green pigment. Um, then we also have some techniques that instead of giving you elements, they give you the compound. Um, so we can apply uh, light 
or we can apply an infrared beam or a laser, and the interaction uh, between the radiation and the matter will give you similar plots. In this case, showing you specifically what compound. So instead of having copper, you, we will know that it's a copper carbonate. So we can even narrow down further the identity of, of that material, like in this case, azurite, a blue pigment. Um, so this is the approach. All of them are non-invasive. We don't have to touch the surface of the document, and of course, we don't have to take samples. Um, so to give you, I'm going to talk now about the, the results obtained on the analysis on, on the maps, on, on Bartlett's maps. And just to give you a bit of historic context, although you probably know uh, way better than me about um, this uh, moment in, in time. Um, so both the National Archives and um, the National Library of Ireland uh, hold a, a very relevant collection of um, uh, maps of Ireland. Um, so they depict plantations, fortifications, towns in Ireland, made during mainly the reigns of Elizabeth I and James I. Uh, they were commissioned by the English forces to assist with the planning of the campaigns and to visually represent the expansion and limits of English control in, in Ireland. Um, William Cecil uh, was Queen Elizabeth uh, I's chief advisor, and he, he was very keen on cartography, and we find his annotations on many of these maps with a very particular handwriting and a different type of ink. Um, the English cartographers that came to Ireland in that time were usually uh, military engineers with some uh, skills on surveying and, and cartography, uh, and they were serving the troops that fought the, the Irish chiefs. Um, the maps were often drawn during the campaign or immediately after the campaign, um, the, the battle. So in the archival context of these maps, um, at least at the National Archives, they were extracted from the State Papers Island, Series 63 and 64, and specifically uh, Bartlett's maps, the, the regional maps, were enclosed in a letter uh, dated 1609 from Sir Thomas Ridgeway, the treasurer of Ireland, uh, addressed to Robert Cecil, uh, the Secretary of State in London, asking for advice on how to distribute the confiscated lands in Ireland to English noblemen. And, I will come back to this later, but he specified that maps were for his majesty's view, and this will be important uh, for the interpretation of the, the results. Uh, so we analyzed seven, um, 20, 27 maps by at least nine known map makers, because some of them were um, signed or attributed to, to known um, map makers of the time. We covered six decades uh, over the reign, as I said, the reigns of Elizabeth I and James I, and you, you can see some examples there on the screen. Um, but today I'm going to focus on Richard Bartlett because of the incredible, incredible quality of his work. Um, so his life is poorly documented. We, we only have four maps that are signed. And he's, he used to sign Bartlett North, and this suggests that perhaps um, a French name uh, and perhaps an origin in Norfolk. And that's why he emphasized that, that he was an Englishman. He was from Norfolk. Um, in a letter of recommendation to Cecil, they talk about Bartlett, although they misspelled his surname but we're certainly sure that it was, it was him. So I, they define him as a young English gentleman who had spent the last four or five years in Spain. So that makes scholars wonder if he was a, whether he was a Catholic. Um, he spent three years working in Ulster in the military campaign of Montjoy as a surveyor and cartographer. And he had a quite bitter end, as you might probably know. He was beheaded by the inhabitants of uh, sorry, uh, because they wouldn't have their territory uh, discovered. Um, by the enemy. Um, so basically, we don't know much about his life through the, doc the documentation, so we have his work, basically, to learn about him as an artist. Um, 
he had an unusual talent, as Andrews emphasizes in his, in his book, The Queen's Last Map Maker. Um, geographical judgment, cartographic professionalism, and also artistic flair. And something that really struck me when I first saw his work is that, for instance, if you search for similar images on Google, what you get is like modern comic books, graphic novels, video games, and that's how modern his, his maps look. He's, he's really powerful and, and colorful and um, skillful artistically. So these are the regional maps that we uh, hold at TNA, and the, the maps that I started working on, um, you probably know them. Uh, so the earliest that I'm, I'm showing on top uh, is a de uh, depiction of a lake, Lognia, uh, from July 1601. So it's one of the earliest maps uh, preserved from, from Bartlett. And it's interesting that it's uh, unpainted, and this might be relevant as well later on. Um, then we have the three regional maps at the bottom that they are dedicated to Montjoy and closely related to each other. So they have the same format, style, and color range. Um, they are placed chronologically. So the first one, the earliest one, is the, the known, as, um, known as the campaign map. And then we have the general description of Ulster and then the base map. Um, and this is the set of maps that is... Uh, is uh, held at the National Library of Ireland, uh, the maps that I analyzed last February when I visited Louise. There are 12 maps um, featuring maps and plans for towns and fortifications in, in various counties. Um, it also contains plans of structures such as Dublin Castle and maps depicting military encampments during the Nine Years' War. Um, they came to the library in, the, in 1956 following a serendipitous resurfacing in London. And finally, there is one map at Trinity College Dublin that I managed to analyze as well during my stay um, here last February, and it's one of the earliest maps as well. It's dated 1601. So moving on to the results, very quickly, um, a comment about the paper. So looking at the paper helped us uh, visualize watermarks, and Bartlett's uh, always, maps always have the, um, the bunch of grapes, this characteristic watermark. Um, that we, we have seen also in other examples of documents uh, from Dublin and related to Dublin Castle. Um, looking at the inks, he was using iron gold ink for text, outlines, and shading as cross-hatching, as you see there. And uh, we had a, a, the presence of impurities mixed in with the ink, so zinc and copper. And this can be interesting in order to uh, track back a particular batch of ink uh, and also to differentiate different hands in a manuscript, looking at the impurities in the ink. He was also using gold ink for highlights in, in the maps. Um, his palette was very consistent in terms of the pigments he was using. So he would use vermilion for reds, and that's uh, mercury sulfide. Um, he would use red lead for that orange shade in the, in the buildings and apply a shading of an organic dye to create this three-dimensional three effect. And, and those are tiny details, so he was very skilled. And in some cases, we saw a degradation of the red lead. It, it's a pigment that is known for darkening over time. And under the microscope, we could see that there are still orange particles in, in those areas. So we could understand also the degradation of some of the materials. Um, the pink and purples were interesting because they were organic dyes. Um, so the pink was uh, a dye extracted from insects, such as carmine, cochineal, kermes, these kind of materials. And the purple is probably plant-based or lichen-based, like uh, um, orchid, for instance, that was used at the time. Um, and we know that because of the characteristic features in the, in the spectra and also because of the lack of fluorescence in the pinks 
Um, normally, mother is fluorescent under UV light, so we can discard mother and uh, lean towards a, an insect-based um, red dye. Um, the blue was normally azurite, or its uh, synthetic counterpart, blue vertiter, that is similar uh, chemically, so we cannot tell which one it is. And then Bartlett was using indigo for shading to create, again, three-dimensional effects. Um, the greens are likely verdigris in, in Bartlett's maps, and to create the, the color of the sea, the turquoise hues, he was using mixtures of azurite with a yellow uh, colorant. Um, yellows were interesting. We found two different types uh, used across Bartlett's map. So an organic dye that, again, is fluorescent under UV light, as you can see. Um, and what uh, Luis was explaining before, so the extract of the plant, likely weld, is a liquid. And to make it into a pigment, a powder, uh, they would precipitate that liquid onto gypsum, for instance. And that's why we find uh, sulfur and calcium when we analyze the, the yellow areas. Uh, then there is a darker pigment, darker yellow pigment that Bartlett used to, to have. Um, and this is interesting. It's arsenic-based. We also found sulfur. So initially we thought, okay, we have a mineral there, um, such as ore pigment or realgar that were quite common at the time. But a complementary technique of analysis called Raman revealed that actually it's not the mineral, but a synthetic form of uh, arsenic sulfide. And this was very interesting because there are very few instances of this pigment identified so far. And I'm literally showing you what, what people have identified uh, on this slide. So we have some uh, Italian illuminated manuscripts where this pigment has been found, um, a Dutch old painting, 17th century, a polychrome sculpture, um, Flemish, and then some designs for textiles at the Victorian Albert, 18th century. But basically finding this material in Bartlett's maps means that it's the first instance of uh, use of uh, orpiment, um, sorry, arsenic sulfate glass in British graphic art. Um, then we have a couple of exceptions. So we said that Bartlett's work uh, materials were very uh, consistent, but there are two uh, maps where he was using a different palette. Uh, and one is the Trinity College uh, map. So in this case, the palette is much more simpler. And he was using uh, indigo and yellow ochre and some vermilion. So perhaps it's because it's an earlier map, or he, ha he might have limited access to materials at the beginning of his campaign in Ireland. Or perhaps this map was left simply inked, and somebody else painted it afterwards. Um, and it's comparable to this other example from the same year that was actually left blank. Um, another exception is this map from the National Library of Ireland, where we found modern pigments. So pigments that were not synthesized until the middle, the middle of the 19th century. So this means that we have a replica here. It's not an original. And, and it was helpful to have the analysis to understand that it's impossible that Bartlett would have used chrome yellow or cerulean blue. So we identified a, a modern replica. And now briefly, um, Luis is going to talk to you about the heraldic manuscripts. So just very quickly um, say that the heraldic manuscripts at the NLI are a significant collection of illuminated manuscripts to survive the 16th and 17th centuries. And they were created during a political fraught con uh, period of conquest, which you all know very well. And uh, they document key players in Irish life and cover pivotal events in the history of Ireland. The manuscripts were produced by heralds working in the office of the Ulster King of Arms, which was established in 1552 to control the use of memorial bearings, and they were a symbol of the new Tudor administration in Ireland. So colour is an essential element of heraldic art, and there is extensive use of colourants in the NLI collections. collection. The images were created by the heralds themselves as part of their official duties. 
As part of ongoing conservation um, work for digitisation, I wanted to identify and document the range of pigments present for two reasons. Firstly, to investigate the chemical degradation of some of the colours present, but moreover, to document the unique examples of coloured cultural heritage made in Ireland in the 17th century. So as yet, Ireland does not have a conservation scientist working in any of our cultural institutions. And uh, Lucia's fortuitous visit was an excellent opportunity to collaborate and to compare two important manuscript collections. And I greatly appreciate her knowledge and expertise. So I chose just three manuscripts on paper, and they were clearly dated and produced in Ireland for this project. The earliest dates from 1602, that's MS44, um, and it's signed by Molyneux, who is one of the heralds. The second with a similar date, it's not signed. And the third dates from 50 years later, and it's signed by Albon Leverett, who was another employee of the, of the, of the office. And this is just a quick visual of what these, what these uh, manuscripts look like. They're approximately A4 in size, um, very detailed illuminations, as you can see. Um, this is the second manuscript. Um, you may know this as the funeral entries. It's a very famous manuscript, highly coloured. And this is the last one um, from 50 years later. As you can see, it looks very different in style from the, the first two. So very quickly, just to look at the colours um, identified or the pigments identified, the blues. Um, so we have two blues. One is uh, azurite, which is a copper-based pigment, on the left, top left there. You can see it's very different then from the right, which is an indigo um, colour, which is a dye. Next, um, we have um, also copper on another manuscript, and uh, this copper is actually degraded, so um, this was um, found during analysis that we had degraded. Um, and then in the later manuscript, we have a smalt, which is um, based on glass, and it's actually quite rare to find this in manuscripts, um, so this is a nice um, example of that. Um, for the reds, we have vermilion, which is a very common uh, red, uh, red lead, and there's organic shading, shading with a lake. Um, and this could be an insect-based uh, lake. Um, and then we have an example of degradation uh, of the flesh tones, which is generally a mixture of red lead, gypsum, and vermilion. And um, Luthia thinks that this may be a formation of galena, which is a separate um, chemical compound and one that we need to investigate more. But this is, again, a new example of degradation. Finally, then, yellows, we have arsenic sulfide, which is likely orpiment, common at the time. And um, on the later manuscript, we have um, an organic lake on, as I mentioned, um, a gypsum substrate. Um, Orpiment ye yellow base um, was often um, highlighted with gold. Gold was commonly used in, in heraldic art. And we have an example of gold found on the earlier manuscripts, um, GMS 44. And on the right, we have what looks like a gold pigment to the eye, but we actually couldn't find any, or Luthia couldn't find any, um, evidence of it actually being gold or even tin sulfide. Finally, we've got the greens, which is an azurite mixture. And we also have um, Virgo, which is indigo and orpiment mixed. Um, so we're, we're summing up now. So I'm back over to Luthia to, to give the final summary. Um, so comparing the two collections, there are clearly many similarities in the pigments used, at least by um, four different artists within a 50 years period. So we identify 13 different colorants, all of which correspond to a standard early modern artist palette found in English and European maps and art and also in, in the contemporary artist treatises, they mention this. Um, there is another project in Germany that is looking at the analysis of Western European maps and they reveal the common use of very similar pigments such as vermilion, red lead, carmine, verdigris, orpiment, azurite and indigo. 
Um, so we identified examples of chemically altered and degraded pigments. We shed light on the original appearance of the maps before discoloration has happened. And each artist would use pigments in their own characteristic manner, um, and, but employed commonly known art practices. So the particularities in the use of colorants could serve, serve as a marker to identify, identify different map makers or artists. Um, so we could discuss in the quest, during the question some, some of our conclusions, so I don't want to overrun too, uh, too much. And yeah, as a conclusion, uh, we have a varied palette with some very expensive and some unusual materials. Um, and the heraldic manuscript so shows changes over time and some specific choices by individual artists. Um, and the conclusion that we would like to convey today is that uh, there is value in investigating the materiality of, uh, of artworks, and the more works are systematically analyzed, the more relevant the research becomes by ident identifying trends and particularities in the use of materials. Thank you, and sorry for overrunning. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.